Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Jeremy Cliff in London. And I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Wednesday, the 29th of July. And you're listening to the New Statesman World Review. Thank you for joining us. Emily, what's happening in Washington? Well, Washington, D.C. was just added to the places that you have to quarantine if you if you come from there to New York City. So as a person living in D.C. with family in New York City, whose, whose family is in New York City, it was a, a reminder of how this pandemic is physically isolating all of us. And how are things out of your usual spot in London? Yeah, I'm back here for the first time in seven months. And among other things, I'm really struck by how few people are actually wearing masks in public. That's the one thing that really gets you when you arrive from Germany and the UK at the moment. I hadn't really clocked this beforehand and have been looking a bit at the commentary. And it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, in the UK, it's all about civil liberties and who is able or who ought to be able to coerce other people to wear masks. Whereas I've experienced it in Germany as a sort of public health debate. And it did remind me a little bit about some of the things that Clinton O'Toole was discussing with us on the podcast a few weeks ago about sort of British exceptionalism and this sort of sense that the things that apply to other people don't apply for us. But anyway, on a more cheery note, I'm also very excited to see on the newsstands here in Britain the New Statesman's excellent summer special issue, which is out now and contains lots of wonderful writing on our turbulent times and things that can make us forget our turbulent times. Somewhat on the boundary between the two is my own uh, long read on my train trip from Berlin to Naples and back about today's Italy. But there's lots of really great stuff in there and I would encourage listeners to either venture outwards wearing their masks to buy it or to subscribe and read from the safety of their own homes without wearing masks. It's really a, a great issue and really speaks to our times. Emily, for our first segment, what do you think is the moment that will go down in history from the past week? So my moment of the week is sort of, we had a, a tale of two anti-Semitisms. We had rapper Wiley rant for many hours on Twitter and about Jewish people, which resulted in a boycott of British Jews and their allies against Twitter for not handling this more effectively. And then in the States, we had this campaign ad by Senator David Perdue's campaign. He's running for re-election against a Jewish candidate, John Ossoff, and his Ossoff's nose appeared enlarged. And he was with New York's Senator Chuck Schumer, who's also Jewish. And it said that Democrats are trying to buy Georgia. The campaign gave the explanation that there was a filter added, which I don't see how that how a filter adds a, a Jewish senator from New York. But I just thought it was striking that in, in one case, and you know, I think that in some cases, we're very quick to condemn anti-Semitism. And in other cases, we're just not. And, and 
the Republican Jewish committee said, well, he's voted for security to Israel and he's not an anti-Semite to me, just kind of doesn't cut it. So that's what I'll be taking away from this week. Absolutely. My moment of the week, in the sense of a moment that is going to be significant, I think, in the long term, is that a report came out earlier this week saying that fully 57% of those tested in the slums of Mumbai in India had antibodies for coronavirus, which tells us several things. For one thing, it tells us that the Indian government is massively understating the extent of the virus in India, as many people have long suggested. Secondly, it tells us how, I mean, as many people suggested, and I mean, I wrote about this up, this myself in a cover piece for the New Statesman earlier this year, how dangerous it is when coronavirus takes hold in the densely populated urban areas of the global south, where you don't have the say, you know, where you just can't do social distancing, where people can't furlough, where checks or tests for coronavirus are not really realistic. And it's also kind of thirdly points to a, an interesting possibility, which is that the world might have its first proper test for herd immunity, because 57% is not far from the 60 or 70% that we're told um, marks the point at which a population becomes collectively immune to a virus. So it's a really grim and horrible story for those in the slums of Mumbai and similar numbers have been recorded in other parts of India. But it's going to be very interesting to see, I think, and genuinely historically important to see whether that then translates into a sense of whether or not these people who did not choose to be part of such an experiment demonstrate that at a certain point of penetration, the coronavirus infection starts to ebb. So I'll be watching that. So from Mumbai, I'd like to turn to Tbilisi and Georgia in the Caucasus, where we are joined by Ido Fock. Ido joined the New Statesman recently as our new international correspondent, having previously worked for the Financial Times and for OC Media in Tbilisi. And we're really pleased to have him on the team. If you subscribe to our World Review newsletter, and you should very much do that, you will have seen his great pieces on human rights, French politics, Ukraine, and other topics. So welcome, Ido. And uh, how are things in Tbilisi? Yeah, thanks very much. It's very exciting to be on the podcast. Things here are pretty good. One of the big stories, I think, that has been tragically undercovered by the world media, though not the New Statesman, is that Georgia has been really exemplary in combating the coronavirus. I mean, this is a country that has a GDP per capita of under $5,000. It borders the early hotspot of Iran and has very close links to Iran. And yet total cases are under, I think, around 1,000 and total deaths are under 20. I mean, those are incredible numbers. And life here is almost normal. And the big debate here is that flights to Germany and France are reopening in a few days. And the big debate here is, will that undo all the good work that Georgia has done in containing the coronavirus to the point that most people treat it as non-existent? Absolutely. And of course, that applies to you as you are shortly moving to Berlin to join our office in Berlin. What will you miss most about being in Georgia? Come on, is it is it the food? Or is it the landscape or the architecture? I mean, you're among fans of the country, as you know, I mean, Emily, me and me are both big pro Georgians, but what will you find hardest to do without? I think the food and the sort of generally easygoing attitude, the fact that everything is so spontaneous, and that you can get so much within such a, I mean, Georgia is a very, very small country. It's the size of Ireland. It's 4 million people. And yet there is just incredible variety from incredible mountain landscapes that, in my view, beat the Alps. Mm. Also, you know, really, a really vibrant urban culture, incredible food that is reputed the world over. There's certainly a lot to, a lot to enjoy if you come here. That was that was my main thought on on my one visit to Tbilisi was 
when can I get back here? <laughs> and this week, we're very pleased to have your excellent piece on Emmanuel Macron on the New Statesman's website. And this is part of a feature that the New Statesman is running on the future of European politics, where we're we're looking at various European leaders and political trends across Europe to try and kind of get a sense of how European politics has changed. You know, we've, we've seen the headline stories about coronavirus and about the European Union's recovery fund mentioned on this podcast before. But the idea is to kind of really dig into what's happening in the individual countries. And Ido has written a really good piece about the state of French politics, talking to people in the Elysee, in French politics generally, in Paris elsewhere. So I'm really pleased to discuss that in our episode this week. So Ido, start us off. You've given us this overview of French politics three years in. What's, what's, what's the story? You know, we had Emmanuel Macron as this great hope for the sort of centrist wave in Europe. You know, he took voters from the left and the right. How's he doing now? You know, because it's been quite a rough ride. So the impetus for writing this piece was that I really think that people, particularly in the English-speaking world in the UK and elsewhere, see Macron in the terms that he presented himself in when he was running for president. He presented himself as someone who was going to draw from the left and the right. His first cabinet was pretty evenly split between figures from the moderate left and the moderate right. And and he really, he's still perceived in the terms that he sets himself, which is as a centrist and as someone who is banged down the middle. But in fact, that that is nowhere near the reality of how he's governed and particularly the shift he has taken over the past year, where he has chosen to very much tack to the right. He's chosen a, an alumnus of um, Sarkozy's cabinet to be his prime minister, Jean Castex. And he's expended a lot of political capital in signalling that he is choosing to govern to the right. So he has chosen an interior minister who is accused of rape. And Macron very much did not need to pick that particular figure. But he did in order to show that he is strong on law and order and signal that he is the right candidate for right-wing voters. So I really think there's a kind of disconnect between the way he's perceived and the reality of how he is governed. Do you think this is just taking for granted on his part that the left will vote for him? Because he sort of assumes that I'll probably end up in a race against Marine Le Pen in the second round of the French election in 2022. Nobody's going to, you know, the, let, let me put the kind of the devil's advocate here. You know, the left is fragmented, the right is fragmented. I just need to get through to the second round. Then I just need to beat Marine Le Pen. And as you point out in your article, you know, the current polls are 55%, 45%. So to play the devil's advocate, isn't he just trying to kind of go as far as possible towards the right to kind of win over voters from her camp? That might well be the calculation. The calculation, there's what's called a front républicain in France, which is the idea that whatever happens, voters for what are called the Republican parties, i.e. every party but the far right, but uh, Le Pen, rally to the candidate against the far right in the event that there is a second round of a Republican candidate versus the far right. And certainly that's what happened in 2002, very famously, when Marine Le Pen's father was defeated by Jacques Chirac. That's what happened in... Who was, who was hardly a sort of pinko leftist. No, not at all. But he got over 80%, 82%, I think, because of this Front Républicain. And the same thing happened in 2017, where Macron was in the second round against Le Pen and won quite comfortably, though less comfortably than in 2002. And that might very well, it might very well be the calculation that 
whatever happens, people, regardless of their political ideology, are going to vote against the far right. They're going to vote for Macron in the second round. And he can tack as far right as he, as he wants, far space right as he wants, and the left will come home. Now, that might be the calculation, but it's also a very dangerous one. There is an incredible amount of anger on the left at the fact that people did vote for Macron on the basis that they were voting against the far right. And they got a lot of policies that they they really don't agree with. There are loads of policies that they don't agree with, very tough on law and order, economic liberalisation. Actually, actually quite anti-migrant on a few issues, right? Tough on migrants. So all that to say that that might very well be the calculation, but it's not necessarily going to hold forever. I mean, as you point out, the polls right now are quite close, 55 to 45. I mean, that is one person in 20 changing their mind. That's quite close. This idea of the poor people is not going to last forever because... In 2002, it was 80%, and in 2017, it was something like 65%. The percentages of people who are getting ready to who are ready to do this are dropping, and it's not going to work forever. So let's let's speak about the right and the left, because at least over here, the big story when Macron won was the the if not the death, then the very uh, serious illness of the traditional left and traditional right. Parties, traditional center right and traditional center left. Can you, for listeners who maybe have not been following French politics closely since then, bring us up to speed? Where have they made a recovery at all? Where are they in this conversation? So that's certainly true of the traditional left. So the the socialists now have been virtually eliminated. They were the most powerful left wing party in French politics for decades, and now they are virtually non existent. It's much more likely that. A candidate from the Green Party will be the candidate of the moderate left in the 2020 elections, and it is that a socialist. But the irony, and what I talk about in my piece, is that in many ways Macron has become the moderate right. Much of his can of his cabinet now is taken from alumni of that supposedly destroyed right wing party called uh, l'UMP, now called the Republicans. He is governed very much in a way that is intended to signal to both politicians from that party and to their former voters that he is their candidate. Many, many, many of his positions really are clearly intended to signal that he should be the candidate of the moderate Republican right in the 2020 elections. And in fact, I spoke to one of his former advisors who told me that really the point of how he is governed is to avoid the Republicans putting up a candidate. More and more of France consider themselves, French voters consider themselves on the right. And if he can, and his calculation is that if he can be the candidate, the, the only serious candidate on the centre right, he will win. Speaking of politicians who manage to swallow other candidates' voters, let us turn now to Germany and Angela Merkel. Jeremy, you have a piece coming up on Merkel. Do you want to tell us a bit about how, how you see her and German politics is maybe similar or different from the situation that Ido just described in his piece. Yeah. In many ways, you know, Merkel is in a very, very different position from Macron. You know, her her support has soared through the process of the coronavirus. She is riding high. And the question now is, unlike Macron, who in many ways, especially by the standards of French presidents, is still in the early part of his kind of political era, you know, the it is clear that she's coming to the end of hers. And Germany is starting to get to term, come to terms with a post-Merkel era. You know, she said that she won't run for a fifth term in the federal election, which is likely to take place in September or October next year, 2021. 
and she has sort of fired the starting gun and has stuck by her position even as her support has sort of soared in the last few months on a campaign to replace her as first of all the leader of the CDU her Christian Democrat party and secondly as the CDU and its Bavarian sister party the CSU's joint candidate to be chancellor in the election next year and it's kind of interesting to see how the 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 field is shaking out i mean this is what i talk about in my in my piece which we're putting online on Thursday this week, so a day after we're recording. On the one hand, you have several candidates to replace her as the leader or to to take the place of the leader of the CSU, the CDU. She actually stood down from that position last year and effectively gave it to her preferred successor, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, who sort of flopped and resigned early this year. And there are several candidates. There's um, Friedrich Mertz, who is a economically conservative, really quite right wing figure, who actually has been around in German politics for decades and sparred with Merkel and indeed was one of her rivals in her rise through the party in the late 90s and early 2000s. He's back fairly inexplicably, but very much kind of bringing together the right of the CDU. You've got Armin Laschet, who's the Prime Minister of the state of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is Germany's most popular state, who's considered a sort of Merkelian in the sense that he's quite moderate. And he's brought on board Jens Spahn, who is her health minister and was quite a critical figure a few years ago, particularly about the migration crisis, but is now kind of restyling himself as the moderate. So you've got the kind of moderate ticket there. And then you've got Norbert Rutgen, who is a fairly long shot candidate to lead the party, but is kind of very worldly, leads the Foreign Affairs Committee on the Bundestag and is trying to kind of bring foreign policy issues into that debate. So you've got these three candidates to be the new leader of the CDU. You've got Mertz, you've got on the right, you've got Laschet on the moderate side, you've got Rutgen as a sort of moderate slash worldly long shot. And actually, the big question is whether any of them will ultimately run for chancellor next year, because it's not guaranteed that the leader of the CDU will become the chancellor. And I am really interested in Marcus Söder. Marcus Söder is not from the CDU. So Germany's Christian Democrats, the CDU, run in every of the 16 states of Germany, apart from one, which is Bavaria in the southeast. And there they have a sister party who runs only in that state, the Christian Social Union, the CSU. And Zerda is the leader of the CSU. He's the prime minister of Bavaria. And he is actually, in many ways, the front runner. He has done a very good job in public perceptions of dealing with the corona crisis. Merkel visited him. They did a kind of very regal appearance together at a palace by a lake in the foothills of the Alps a couple of weeks ago. He's transformed himself politically. You know, he started off as a quite conservative figure who defined himself against Merkel by talking about the importance of re-establishing German culture and focusing on traditional values and things like putting Christian crosses in public buildings as a way to say, I'm not one of Merkel's lot. But he didn't do very well with that. I mean, he actually did less well than expected in the last Bavarian election. I was there in Munich to cover it and, and interviewed him at the time. But he's kind of been chastened by that and has remade himself as a sort of environmentalist sort of conservative. And he's done really well in the corona crisis. You know, people really respect him. He's been very tough on, you know, the lockdown and masks and so forth. And it looks like it's going to be a question as to whether the CDU leader whether it's Laschet or Mertz or Rutgen, gets to become the next chancellor candidate for the CDU, or whether it's Zerda from Bavaria. You know, you've, you've been speaking about candidates in the German center and right. Ido, in his one of his answers on French politics, mentioned the Green Party. And I was hoping that you could speak a little bit about how you see green fortunes in Germany. 
I mean, the Green Party are, if anything, an even bigger part of German politics than they are in French politics. They've overtaken the conventional centre-left force of the Social Democrats in Germany, the SPD, and have now been routinely polling around or above 20%. You know, they are clearly the dominant force left of the centre of German politics. And they may well be the obvious candidate for a coalition partner for the CDU and CSU, whoever runs as their candidate for the chancellor next year. And that's that's really interesting because, you know, on the one hand, Merkel has really moved the CDU and in many ways the CSU to the left. Like they have become from being quite really quite conservative parties by European standards to being fairly centrist ones. You know, they're not left of the centre, but they're certainly not drastically right of the centre either. And you see that reflected in figures who might replace her. You know, you've got people like, you know, Mertz is seen as a product of a former era. Zerder has gone a long way left in his own personal positioning. And with Laschet, who's considered as a Merkelian, there is a talk about him switching places with Spahn, the health minister, who is sort of more socially liberal and more modern. And all of that points to the fact that the German Greens have really gained prominence in the past years. You know, they've shot up in support and they seem to kind of, in many ways, capture the Merkel era, which is sort of socially, in some ways, quite liberal, is quite modernising, but is also kind of geared around the idea of an orderly and stable society. And they've made a lot of gains in big cities, in parts of the South in particular, they're affected with the opposition. And it looks like there's going to be some sort of coalition between the CDU, CSU and the Greens after the next election. And it points, I think, to a broader shift, which also, which Ida's piece also speaks to, which is the way that conservatism in Europe summed up in elements of the Macron platform, but also in much of the CDU, CSU in Germany, and the way that it's getting together with environmentalism or greenism. And I think that in many ways, and we, we were going to talk about this in a piece that we're publishing on Friday, the big new alliance in European politics that we should all be paying much more attention to than we actually are is between centrist or pro-business conservatism and environmentalism or greenism on the other side. Because I think that kind of brings together a lot of the trends that are taking place in these countries. Yeah, so if we if we spoke about the Greens being the kind of main opposition or main left-wing party in places like Germany and France, there's also an increasing understanding among conservative parties that their electorates really, really care about these issues and they're going to care about them more and more as the effects of climate change become more and more obvious. And so it's not only that they're growing in that environmental issues are growing in importance for left-wing voters, it's also that conservative voters are realizing that the environment is is really important. For them, And so conservative parties or centre-right parties for whom the environment has traditionally not been a huge priority are increasingly catering to those voters. Exactly. And you can read all of our European special series on our international website, which is newstatesman.com slash international. Ido's piece on Macron is up as we record on Wednesday. My profile of Merkel will be up on the Thursday. And Ido and I have a piece on that elision of black and green politics on Friday. So do take a look at those. We also have pieces coming up about Berlusconi's latest political comeback in Italy. Yes, he's still there. Vladimir Zelensky's presidency in Ukraine and Emily on Viktor Orban and how he's used the coronavirus to tighten his grip on Hungary. We'll also have a piece commentary from me in our World Review newsletter this Friday on the transatlantic relationship. So do subscribe to that and you can find all of that at our New Statesman International homepage. I'd also like to flag up that we will be doing a special bonus episode of World Review which will come out sometime this weekend in which I talk to Mark Damaser, the former controller of 
BBC Radio 4 about his piece in our New Sixth and Summer issue about his very personal relationship with Germany as a child of Jewish German parents who grew up in Britain and how he came to terms with modern Germany and its role in today's Europe. So do look out for that. But it is now time for a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call You Ask Us. Thank you. Nailed it. I did a great job. Okay. So normally we take these one at a time, but our questions this week from our listeners are related. So I will throw them to Jeremy and Ido together. We have a question from Alex, which is, who would be Emmanuel Macron's preferred candidate for the German chancellery in autumn 2021? And then a few of you have written in anonymously asking, how might the Franco-German alliance be shaped by Merkel's successor, whoever that might be? Jeremy, do you want to start with that? Sure. I mean, I think if he had a choice, in many ways, it would be Armin Laschet. Listeners may be slightly losing themselves in the various German political names that I throw out here. But of the three candidates to be leader of the CDU, as opposed to Zerda from the CSU, you've got Mertz, Laschet and Röttgen. And they're all from a Western part of Germany with a strong link to France. But of the three, in many ways, Laschet is the one that is is the most bound in with Macron's view of the world. You know, he is the, as I said, the prime minister of North, North Rhine-Westphalia, a state that looks to France. But his instincts are also quite French. You know, he's quite statist. He's quite into industrial policy, which is also classic of that state because, you know, it's the kind of heavy industrial state of Germany. And he's also kind of aligned with with Macron's views on foreign policy. You know, Macron believes that we need to actually sort of make peace or at least find some sort of accommodation with Putin to stop Putin from drifting off towards China. And Laschet too is a, even though he's from the CDU, so the centre-right party in Germany, he's actually quite kind of traditionally open to some sort of alignment or some sort of openness to Russia. So I think in some ways he would be the most natural Macron ally. I would say after that would come easily Norbert Röttgen, whose chances are probably quite poor, but as the most obviously pro-European, actually probably kind of the most aligned with France on things like fiscal issues. But I think, you know, I think Macron could work with Zerda. I think Mertz would be a disaster for the Franco-German relationship because he is quite a chauvinist German. But I think Zerda, as this kind of left-field candidate who would come in as the first ever CSU chancellor, bear in mind there have been two previous CSU chancellor candidates, Francis of Strauss and Edmund Stoiber, who both failed, for the first time, if Söder became the CSU German Chancellor, you know, you, you would have a figure who had a lot of political capital, who had a lot of credibility with conservative Germans. And I think Macron could definitely work with that. So I don't think he has a disastrous kind of candidate, apart from possibly Mertz, where he'd say that's really bad for Germany. But I think I can see him possibly working best with Laschet of, of, of the lot of them. But what do you think, Ido? I mean, from a French point of view? One of the things that Macron really put a priority on was broadening the France's relationship with countries in Europe beyond Germany. So traditionally, for example, the first trip that a French president makes is to Germany. And indeed, Macron did that. But he also has made many, many visits to other European capitals, because there's a sense that while the Franco-German relationship is very good, the relationship with the other 25 member states is not quite as good and has been neglected. And so Macron put a lot of effort into trying to rebuild that those relationships and trying to strengthen them so in a way it kind of, the premise of the question kind of matters less than people think it does or, or the way it's presented because macron is 
for, for all you can say about him, he is incredibly committed to Europe. And Europe is more than its biggest country. It's also 26 other countries. And, and that's more the case now that uh, Britain has left and that France is kind of being thrust into the driving seat with, with Germany, but very much not alone with Germany. Yeah, I think that's a really a really good point. And I'd like to say thank you to the many people who sent in questions about that subject. And thank you very much for them. And I hope we answered them to some extent. As I say, we will be publishing my profile on Merkel soon. And we will also be covering the story as it evolves over the coming months on the New Statesman's international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. And do keep your questions coming in to us at uaskast.co.uk for our episodes over the coming weeks. And that brings us to our look ahead to the following week. Ido, what will you be looking forward to in the next week? So I'm going to cheat slightly and I'm going to pick two things which are not that distinctly related, but they're also not the same thing. The first is the presidential election in Belarus, where President Lukashenko is facing a very, very tough challenge from this incredible team of three women, Svetlana, whose second name unfortunately I'm unable to pronounce, and two others who have really tapped into a mood of discontent in what is often called Europe's last dictatorship. The president has tried every single method to try and keep them down. This woman, Svetlana, is running because her husband was disqualified. Yet the, the, the authorities seem to have been unable to tamp, to tamp down this, uh, this discontent. And so I think it will be really interesting. I, I, it's virtually impossible that Lukashenko is going to, to lose the election. But I, I really think this is the beginning of the end because he's been in power for, I think, over 20 years and he will be unable to tamp down this discontent forever. And relatedly, there are also protests in the Russian Far East, in the city of Khabarovsk, where a governor from the far-right LDPR party was removed by Putin and accused of ordering contract killings. And there have been massive protests there for a few weeks now. And really, the, both protests are a strong rebuke to Putin, who presents himself as kind of a bulwark of stability, of being against the kind of colour revolutions that there were in places like Ukraine and Georgia. And really, what both protests have shown is that there is an incredible amount of pent-up resentment against what might be called the kind of Putinist model. No, definitely worth looking out for. I will be looking forward to Joe Biden's pick of a vice presidential candidate, which I have predicted on this podcast before, but which we are reliably informed will possibly come this weekend. Um, And I say that also partly to give Emily a free run for an alternative date in the coming week. Emily, would you like to give us that and then maybe reflect on the subject that I just stole from you? Yeah, Jeremy just stole the subject that we've discussed on this podcast more than any other possibly save Polish politics. Okay, my alternate will be the equally important publication of my book, The Influence of Soros, the United Kingdom on August 6th. If you enjoy discussions of, of democracy and civic participation, I have good news. Since that is not actually as important as Biden's running mate, yes, it's it's expected to finally be this week. Biden is expected to go with one of three directions. A progressive, someone like Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts and herself a former presidential candidate, a Midwestern moderate, someone like Gretchen Whitmer, governor of Michigan, on whom we have profiled for the New Statesman. But the likeliest of the scenarios appears to be that he will pick a woman of color and specifically a black woman. Now, there's some debate on this. Some say, well, that's just, you know, cheap representation. That's not actually the adaption of policies that will improve the lives of black women in America. And others say, Black women are the spine of the Democratic Party. They are the most reliable Democratic voters and deserve to be on the ticket. So 
Some of the women who we might see announced are Susan Rice, who was Obama's UN ambassador and national security advisor, Val Demings, who is a congresswoman in Florida and a former police officer, Keisha Lance Bottoms, who is the mayor of Atlanta and has gained national prominence both for her handling of coronavirus pandemic and also for the manner in which she's spoken about police brutality, and Karen Bass, who is a congresswoman and the head of the Congressional Black Caucus, and Kamala Harris, who in some ways is the front runner, but in other ways, uh, has been questioned as a pick because she ran against Joe Biden in the primary and went after him in that in that first debate for his record on for speaking fondly of senators who have pushed segregation. So we will discuss that on the podcast next week. Yes, we'll be watching out for that closely. And we'll cover the choice whenever it comes on our New Statesman International homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. And as Emily says, she's going to be covering it next week where I will be away, but Emily and Ida will be co-hosting along with our special correspondent in New York, Sophie McBain. So I will be from my beach chair. I will be in a beach chair. I will be listening into that (laughs) and uh, working out, getting their take on the choice. I think that all remains is for us to say thank you very much to Ido for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com backslash international. As another reminder, they don't need to be your friends for you to tell them about it. Go up to strangers with a mask. Emily's campaign for us to win over our enemies continues abreast. Uh, Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you very much for listening. And until next week. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.